Hey, welcome back to Embrace Your Lazy. Today I'm excited because I am asking a very personal question to my friend, the philosophy whisperer, Paula Crone. I'm asking him, what can old philosophers teach us about life today? I hope you enjoy. All right, Paul. So the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast here um, is you're a little bit of a philosopher whisperer for me and you know right now i uh i'm struggling a little bit you know with the coronavirus and um figuring out like who i want to be and what i want to write um and a lot of people are telling me to look at like old philosophers but really my question to you is what can old philosophers teach us about today about our lives like isn't it aren't they just too removed from it That's a great question. What can you learn from old philosophers? Why should you bother reading old books written more than a hundred years ago? Well, well, this is the test that I like to put myself in is, okay, well, the book test is, if it's a book that stood the test of time, if people are still talking about it a hundred years, 500 years, a thousand years really with the Stoics, if they're still talking about those books, they're worth reading just by default. They're definitely worth reading. And what can you learn from them? Why bother with, with them? I've learned more from Nietzsche, from Frederick Nietzsche, who is the philosopher king of philosophers, who would philosophize with a hammer in his own words. That's what he would say. But yeah, I would really break things down. I've learned, well, learned from all of the 15 sentences of his books, of his book, Beyond Good and Evil. The only 15 sentences that I could understand after reading each of those 15 sentences 15 times because they're just that difficult to, to understand. I've learned more about life, more of the lessons that the self-help genre tries to teach you in an entire book in just a few sentences from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was such a, he was the most succinct writer in the world. And you can just get so much from reading him. And I've been reading his autobiography, actually, which is called I hope I have this word right. Ek, eke, I don't know. It's, I think it's Latin. Eke homo. It's his autobiography and he talks about the books that he wrote and he talks about his philosophy, which I am definitely no expert in. I am a student who's figuring this all out myself. And there's this wonderful piece in this book, which I would love to share with you, if you so please. Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So first, I'll give you some context. So there is a book by Nietzsche called Schopenhauer as Educator. And Brain Pickings has this great article about that, which I highly recommend anybody to get into, get into where he outlines his philosophy for, it's pretty much his self-help philosophy and what that is and how it is that one can be themselves and how difficult it is to be yourself. Because the self-help world kind of portrays being yourself as this whimsical thing, but it's really, really hard. Because a lot of that has to do with having courage and admitting to yourself your deepest truths. And so in Nietzsche's autobiography, he says this, this is one of my favorite combinations of sentences of all time. And it rhymes, which is really cool. How much truth can a spirit bear? How much truth can a spirit dare? That became for me more and more the real measure of value. Error is not blindness. Error is cowardice. Every acquisition, every step forward in knowledge is the result of courage. Every single step forward you've ever, ever made in your life is from courage. You can have all the information in the world. If you're not courageous, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. 
Interesting. So, but, okay. So, you know, I am no philosopher whisperer. Is he basically what he's trying to say in that is that we need courage in our lives to face the truth of who we are? Is that what he's trying to say in that part? I think you're absolutely right. You do need courage to face who you really are. And you've, I know you've read a little bit of Jung and Jung understood that within each personality is what he would call the shadow. And to really know yourself, you have to be able to combine the worst parts of yourself. And Nietzsche also wrote later, I think it was, in, no, it was in Beyond Good and Evil, the great epochs of our life come when we transform our evil qualities into our good qualities. And the best way that I can illustrate that is by uh, this hypothetical example. Let's say you're in a meeting and you're doodling in the meeting and the boss says, okay. stop doodling. Okay, like you're supposed to pay attention to the meeting. What if the boss said, okay, hey, you're really good at doodling, you're really good at drawing. Can you illustrate, can you visualize value? <laughs> you know, Can you draw this boring point up on the whiteboard in a way that's fun? Okay, now you've been able to take that evil quality, quote unquote, and now it's a good quality. So I could be wrong about that, but that's just the way that I see it. And so, yeah, it does take courage to admit to yourself that you have these parts of your personality that the super ego slash society at large might deem unnecessary or your shadow this, this is, like, is great. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So <laughs> this is, this, this brings up a good point because maybe, you know, when I'm having this identity crisis, I am putting the parts of myself that are uh, in the so-called shadow away. Are they kind of um, things in your life or maybe in generally in people's lives that they throw away according to these philosophers that, you know, they usually don't um, accept because society deems those things to be bad? That can definitely be a reason that society deems those things as bad and it, it might depend on where you were where you were brought up and what your childhood was like and what when you become an adult which qualities of your personality aren't acceptable and supposed to be acceptable especially with the creatives the creative kinds of qualities too like like doodling for example or telling stories you can you know i just had a guest on my podcast john dobb tell me that if you can tell a good story you'll always have a job and we think that storytelling is this thing that we do as a kid or that our parents are just supposed to do with us uh, to, to tuck us into bed yeah, it's these, these whimsical qualities, too, that we bring back into our lives. And when was it in our lives that we decided that those qualities are no longer acceptable? And so that's part of the identity crisis as well, is resurrecting the parts of you that you cast aside at one point in the transition from adolescence to adulthood. And so I don't know, I so guess it's person dependent. It's hard for me to, for me to say exactly where it comes from. It's, it's very broad. Well, I think, I think you're on something because I think, you know, a lot of the, the famous Picasso quote is he has to, um, it took him like, I don't know how many years, I'm going to get this quote wrong. So um, all the people listening, sorry, but um, he, he, he does this thing where he says, you know, it took me X amount of years to learn to paint like Raphael and it took me a lifetime to paint like a child. So yeah. I'm, what I, from what I'm hearing you say is that sometimes, and none of these things are broadly across the board, right? Um, if I like there's people listening to it that are just completely different. Um, but what I'm hearing you saying is that a lot of people becoming an adult in this kind of weird transition period we're in is about learning how to be a child or maybe incorporate some parts of yourself that were quote unquote childish that you threw away. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. When you mentioned that Picasso quote, I immediately thought of writing. So I've been writing every day for, for 10 months now. And only in this last month have I finally understood what it means to, well, not maybe completely understand what it means, but to figure out what it means to write like myself. And I've been, it took me 10 months to do that. Like I knew how to write when I first sat down to do my first blog post. I mean, I, I was writing badly and I've, I've improved since then, but it does take, it takes so long to refigure yourself out and to go, oh yeah, it could take a lifetime for me to figure out like my own voice and to do things in the way that only you can do. And, and with writing and with doing content creation and, and podcasting or any sort of creative thing, so much of what you do at the beginning is heavily influenced from the people that you look up to, or at least it has been for me. And it's good to have those influences, but underneath those influences, you, you got to dig underneath those things and find your voice and find that little specter of light that's hiding underneath all of those, that, those piles of influences. It's a lot of digging, just a lot of digging. I call it dumpster diving. Like I, I, people say, oh, you write every day. Like, yeah, well, I'm also getting garbage out of my soul that's just manifest in bad writing. Dumpster diving is what it is. You got to dumpster dive every day and cover your body in filth just to get to that little gem underneath everything else. That little diamond. Oh, man. I love that. That is that's so fantastic. Oh, that's that's so great. I'm gonna I'm gonna start telling people right. He's like dumpster diving. It's exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Was there a a time like you said you kind of felt like you're writing for yourself? Was there like a moment or was how how did you kind of know you're like oh this article or this sentence that I wrote was me? When it has nothing whatsoever to do with all of the popular stuff that I'm into, like no slight to self-development and productivity and all of that. But when it's a sentence that this is only I could have written the sentence with the quirkiness of my, my sense of humor. I've been, I've been uh, drawing a little bit more on my blog too. When I've been doing things like that, that's when it feels like me. When it doesn't feel like a summarization, like I'm, I'm not opposed to book summaries and article summaries either, but I really like the writing that only I could do. The writing that would have gotten me in trouble in school. That's when I know that it's mine. Because <laughs> that's, I got in trouble in school so much because I didn't want to follow the rules. And so the great thing about blogging is that there are no rules. You got to create those rules yourself. Wow. And so that's when it feels like me. You know, that, well, this, there you uh, go. That, there's an example of an evil quality, like not wanting to confine uh, myself to rules of uh, particular rules of writing when I was in school. Though it's good to, you know, in, in an academic sense, you want to learn what that is. You got to impose structure. I'm in college and I'm, I've got to learn APA style to do psychology papers. I can't afford to do that. But with creative writing, there are grammatical rules you need to follow, of course, but the structure you can play around with. And if I'm playing around with structure and incepting humor into it then that's when it feels like me for sure and i can play around with the subjects that i love like self-development and, and minimalism and podcasting and talking to you and add my own flair to it that's interesting i wonder you know this all kind of brings it back too because two things right so these philosophers are so good because they're writing for themselves and you know you can read it and they're like 60 70 80 even more years old and they have written so much longer, but because they're writing like themselves, it stands the test of time, right? They're not writing like their trends. And also what I'm hearing is Nietzsche took his own advice because <laughs> yeah. he was saying to do all these things. And it, it seems to me, and I'd like to hear your opinion about this. It seems to me like that comes out in his writing that he is kind of 
himself and incorporating those sides of himself in his writing. Yeah, he definitely does. He definitely does follow his own advice. And you, what's so cool about his autobiography is that it's, as far as I can tell, I mean, I've only read one other book by him, so I could be totally wrong, is that he does outline his rules for a, his beliefs in what a productive, creative person should do. And he followed those beliefs. He said, this is so, <laughs> this is fascinating. He said, sit, and this is from his autobiography, sit as little as possible, credit no thought, not born in the open air and while moving freely about. And that's such a high, high bar. Like you don't ever well, trust so, any so thought you mean? had while you were sitting. Ah, okay. And so he wrote, he basically wrote his most profound book, Thus Spoke, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, while he was walking. He said that every idea was just born from him taking these lonely walks through the woods and that that's where he got the visions for this book that he was working on. And, you know, in self-development nowadays, you hear the dangers of sitting, right? And so Nietzsche was talking about that hundreds of years ago. It, and he, like, like I said, he puts it in one sentence, sit as little as possible. And then he goes- You're making says, me think well, we should walk while doing this podcast. <laughs> I have been thinking about doing some strange formats where I just take a hike through the woods and I just talk to people on, on the camera or something. But yeah, it'd be fun, like a walk and talk. Yeah, exactly. Walk and, walk and talk podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Are there any other, um, you know, I don't really know what the word practical means. Sometimes I get annoyed by the definition of practical um, <laughs> because people are like, oh, what, what's a practical takeaway I right. can take? I take, take from this. And the problem is a lot of the most deep thoughts aren't practical immediately. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. But, are, but I guess were they, so practical is the wrrong word, but were there any things that you read in Nietzsche or any of these kind of philosophers that you decided to apply to your life or that kind of change your opinion of your life? I'm so glad you said that it's hard to parse out the practical from the, what might be called the esoteric, these old books. It's a little bit meta. The practical part is, well, you sit down with these books, especially with somebody by Nietzsche, uh, some, something by Nietzsche. You sit down with a book written by somebody so damn smart and you realize how little you know about your own motivations, your own drives. And what Nietzsche was doing with his philosophy was to construct a revaluation of all values. And he opened Beyond Good and Evil by this amazing with this amazing paragraph where he was telling the reader, when you read another philosopher, you have to understand what their motivations are. And you don't think about those things when you read a book. You just say, oh, it's a book, cool. Like this will be helpful. But you don't really know what they're about, what that, read, what that author is trying to get to. If they're trying to sell you something or if they're trying to make you believe a certain thing in a certain way. What Nietzsche really wants you to do is to investigate yourself. All good philosophers want you to investigate yourself primarily. And that's, that's the courageous part that you need to do. So the practical takeaway from, you know, you rarely see, you never see really uh, five key takeaways from Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil on Twitter or whatever. It's always, it's always the, the service level stuff. And, you know, understandable because these books are really hard to understand for sure. And I'm, again, I'm no expert. It's really tough to get your head around. You can't just say, oh, I just read this powerful sentence from Nietzsche. And now this is my summary on it. This doesn't work. You have to spend time with it. These aren't books that you can speed read. These are books that you challenge yourself with. You know, it's really good to challenge yourself with maybe two or three really difficult books every so often, every couple of months. And that's what I like to do for sure. Again, in no slight to modern books, there's nothing wrong with them. But 
I do have a book called Be Fearless, which is, I don't know, 200 pages long. And Nietzsche, as far as I can tell, wrote what that whole book, Be Fearless, is about in one sentence, which is, the error is a lack of courage. Like, okay, yes, that's exactly right. Interesting. So it's almost like it, uh, the meta aspect of it, not just the ideas, it makes you become a more slower, more thoughtful reader. And yes. that helps you in other aspects of life that are not related to reading. That is absolutely true. Yes, that is absolutely true. It, it slows you down. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think of these cognitive challenges. I like to think of the brain itself as like a form of a different kind of stomach. You need to slow your digestion down every once in a while, not eat so fast. Because if you're eating too fast, you're going to get a stomach ache. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's great. So the goal of this podcast now has, has changed. It's I want it. I want to be a walking podcast. That I want it to be like eventually be like Nietzsche, where it's just like the twenty minutes are a three-hour podcast. It's that that condensed and compressed, just like he compresses it in a sentence. That's what I thought you were going to do. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. Are there any other? So you talked about Nietzsche a lot. Are there any other kind of philosophers that, if um, people are listening, uh, want to read more about that they should look into? Yeah, I'm not too well versed on the other popular philosophers. Uh, I don't know, Plato, Aristotle. I haven't read anything by them, actually. I have read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. He's one of the bigger names in Stoicism. I've read that book twice. Right now, I'm just getting into the Bhagavad Gita. I hope I have that pronunciation right. Yeah. Bhagavad Gita, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting into that. I just was reading it last night. Uh, I just read the first two chapters, and I thought that was, that was interesting. And I I've, haven't spent much time with that book, so I can't really talk about how I think about it so far because I'm so new to it. So yeah, it's just good to read time-tested books for sure. Uh, if I were to give another recommendation, let me take a quick glance. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's not that old. It's maybe 60 years old, but Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, who's a psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz. If you haven't read the book, What Are You Doing With Your Life? You need to go read it. I've read it twice. Please read it. It's one of the greatest books ever written. You know, I, I had so many friends when I uh, was like, I had so many friends tell me about that book because they know I like reading and I like that philosophy and res about resiliency, all these sorts of things. They're like, what are you doing? Have you not read the book? So I guess one of the big takeaways from this is, you know, if you haven't read Man's Search for Meaning, especially now, you know, everyone talks about unprecedented times and we're yes. always living yes. in unprecedented times, but it's just helpful, I think, seeing someone going through something so difficult in life and being able to have the courage to to deal with it and that yeah that book is it's one of my favorites absolutely but, i have two copies i picked oh, up wow. a, yeah i have two copies i forget how i got the second one i think it was at a thrift store a thrift bookstore and it was for like four dollars i've been meaning to just give it away to somebody who needs it this is, but this, this is great, Paul. Now I have, I have some food for thought for, for my question because I know the answer is yes, but I also know that, you know, you've given me some, a lot of like, again, the dirty word practical, um, things I can do to kind of look into who I want to become. And I think I'm at that stage in my life where I'm on the precipice between two different things. Um, so, so, so this is really helpful. Thanks for coming on the show. That was a blast. First of all, that was incredibly fun. And second of all, I please keep doing this. And I, I hope you can find, find some good guests. Yeah, that was, that was fun, Pranav. Seriously.
Thanks. Thanks, Paul. I mean, I, I definitely learned a lot. I had a lot of fun talking to Paul. He always has a very unique take on stuff. So he really got me thinking. And actually, this is basically like every podcast I'm going to do, uh, a selfish exercise because I really was kind of struggling with the things that I talked to Paul about. So he really gave me a kind of different added perspective. You should definitely check out Paul. He's always insightful. He's always interesting. You can check out his stuff at penguinlatte.blog. He also has a podcast that you can get anywhere you get podcasts. It's called The Penguin Latte Podcast. And if you like me, you want to listen to more of my podcasts, you want to hang out with me and get a weekly newsletter from me, definitely sign up for my newsletter as well. It's called embraceyourlazy.com. And then you can click subscribe. So I'm going to be having more of these podcasts, more essays, more stuff, uh, more conversations. So I hope you hang on. Embrace Your Lazy is restarting. Hey, so um, so basically, Ritesh, the reason I had you on the podcast is as I am getting busier reading your newsletter, I'm realizing that play is like really uh, an interesting concept and and, and, and important, powerful, but as you know, all of us, um, including me, have all these things to do. I have to really justify it in my mind. Um, so I really wanted to have you here to basically ask you, in your opinion, why is play powerful? Why is play profound? Hey, thanks for having me over first and foremost, because like this is my absolute first time I've ever been on a podcast, right? So this is <laughs> right. number one podcast, podcast number one. Yoo-hoo. Nice. I got so, you. I got you, Brad. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> yeah. so, so thanks a bunch. I mean, like, but if I were to answer that question, I mean, the f- you've already answered that question for me, right? So the fact that you're having this this podcast format where you're not making this like an interview to and fro to and fro to and fro thing but like you said in your own words that this is just like a hangout right it's not an event it's not an episode it's not something that we plan over months and years and get together and then you know it's a structured thing it's 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 fun it's a hangout and in those two words you're essentially describing some of the concepts of play right so it's fun it's it's a hangout it's it's a connection between people it's 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 fun, right? So why is it profound? I think the, whenever I think of play, right, personally, when I started thinking of play, I always look back to two things, right? I look at animals and I look at kids, mm-hmm. right? So I look at babies and I look at animals. So if you look at babies, they're always playing with something or the other, right? Yeah, true. So you look at a new, yeah, so, right? So if, if you just, like, you go close to a baby and you put your finger there, it'll grab your finger and you know, it's trying to play with that. Right. If you go close to the baby or if you hold the baby up to your face, you know, it, it reaches out at your nose. And, you know, if, if you wear glasses, it'll probably pull your glasses off. And it's, it's exploring. It's curious. And it's playing with everything. It's playing with your face. It starts playing with your hair. Right. A baby is essentially so curious that it plays with everything. Now, is it playful because it's curious or is it is it curious because it's playful? Uh, you're asking me the questions here. The roles are reverse. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know. Is play a tool for curiosity? Um, is it? Is it kind of? 
what I'm what I'm hearing is that that these things that are very important to us play is a way we get to it. It's like a, a it, I don't like calling a tool because that's not a playful way of defining play, I guess. But I, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Because and that's that's exactly why I added that tagline or a motto, right? So I got this thing that says "play to learn and learn to play," right? So you learn to play. Essentially, the reason I put it as learn to play and then play to learn is because I'm looking at it from the perspective of an adult, right? As an adult human being, I've forgotten how to play. But if you look at a baby, it's every single act, movement is all oriented around play. A baby probably falls down a hundred times a day trying to learn to stand up on two feet, right? It's crawling. It can't even stand, you know, even to get onto its haunches and crawl around on all fours. It's an effort. Sometimes it falls flat on its face. And for it to even get up on two feet, it probably lands flat back on its ass, pop, right? And then sometimes it falls in front, sometimes falls down, sometimes it you know, stands up, does a little dance, rickety dance, and then again falls down. But if you look at the, the baby's face, there's no disappointment. It's, mm. it's not sad, right? If I were to fail five times a day, I just got a unicycle and I've been falling all the time, right? So now I, I'm so... Is just in my head. I don't even want to look at it. It's just in one corner. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so I, I like it's 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 something that's just there in me. It's like I've fallen five times, so it's like instinctively my mind has just like created a diversion that I don't even look at it. It's bright orange. I can't miss it. But in when I walk past it, I don't even see it. Right, my brain is wired into not seeing that unicycle because then I'd have to cycle and then I'll fall down and it knows that falling down is going to, is bad for my psyche. It makes me feel like, damn, I can't even cycle, right? I'm 40 years old and I can't even cycle. So whereas with the child, there's no sense of disappointment. It's probably falling a hundred times. Every one of us has been through it, right? We couldn't stand up on two feet at some point in our lives. And that transition from four feet, four-legged quadrupedal to bipedal movement took so much effort, so much consistent day-to-day -day repetitive, constant efforts in trying to make that happen. But so here, we don't recollect, we don't recollect that at all. So we here's a question. As trauma? Based, based, on, based on what you're saying, I, maybe this will take you in a slightly different road, but as an adult, right, let's say you have to ride a unicycle or, or write a book or, you know, do whatever, all the things you have to do. As adults, why do you think it's not easier or better just to will it, right? Can't you just feel like I am willing myself to ride a unicycle and learning this unicycle? And I think you make an, an interesting and good point about why play is more useful. But I think, you know, that's something I'm struggling with. So maybe to hear you re-articulate it would be helpful for me. Okay, let me look at it this way, right? So I've actually done that, right? In my life, if I've set my eyes on the price, I can will myself to go and get it, mm. right? I mean, I know that because like I'm, I'm a full grown adult. I've learned the ways of, you know, focus, concentration, willpower, making it happen, you know, saying I'm going to burn the midnight oil. This is going to happen, right? So I, I've learned those, those ways of making things happen. I've also reached a stage in my life where I think it's not worth the effort. 
right? And that's the time I've started thinking, like looking back and saying, huh, okay, that's awesome. I won. I got this. I finished that project. I made this happen. That's wonderful. I completed all the sessions in time, you know. Was it worth the effort? And when I look back at that answer, at that question, I'm not quite happy with the answer, huh. right? And that's when I, I came back to play. I, I started coming back to play and thinking about it and asking myself, there were so many times in my life where I tried to do things just for fun, just out of play, you know, as a child, as a teenager. None of that was actually successful in the sense it wasn't something that I could put on my resume. It wasn't something that, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. If if I were to meet old friends today and discuss about what happened and look back, you know, down memory lane and have like a nostalgic, you know, evening out, all of those moments that I'm so happy and excited to talk about aren't, if you know, aren't things that's on my resume, aren't accomplishments that I would like to share with the world and say, you know what, this is what I did. Those don't seem like fun at all. I mean, like I need to, they remind me of what I achieved, but they don't remind me of the fun I had along the way. And if they do, the amount of pain that I had along the way as equates to the fun, I mean, the ratio is way off. Hmm. Interesting. So here's another thing that that's related to that point, I think. Is it, so writing, writing is, is very difficult for me, right? And, and I, I think you're right. I, I actually, this is, uh, it was, that's such a good point because I really do think in all the moments of my life and even in a specific task, like writing, my favorite stuff often comes out through a state of play, right? So, but w- one thing that's, that's difficult is I don't know how to balance the play with the pain of writing, right? Because writing itself is very difficult. Um, so do you think, is, is it like you said with, with the baby situation that if you're truly embodying play, the disappointment and, and the pain, it, it's just part of the process, but you don't feel it? Or are they kind of two separate things that there is a willing part and there is a part that is only play? Let me know if you don't understand the question, by the way. It's an exploration that I'm still diving into at this point of time because the truth is I can't claim to have any of the answers with a subject like this, right? So the truth yeah. is every question that you ask me is is an exploration, is, is you're opening up a new avenue, a new rabbit hole for me to dive down into. And that's what I love the most about this subject because like I can't think of a single person who can claim to be an expert on this subject. You're exploring play with play, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On brand, as always. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the only person who can who can claim to be an expert at this is a child itself, right? Yeah. Like, and every time I need answers like this, I look down at the kittens around me. Like, so I have a whole bunch. I think I have, I'm surrounded by some twelve kittens at this point of time. So they're all in different stages of growth. So some of them are like really tiny. Some of them are just been born. Some of them are like you know teenagers. But the amazing thing about this is that they spend, when they're just born and they're like able to move their hands and feet, they spend up to 16 hours a day play fighting with each other. So out of 24 hours in a day, they spend practically 16 hours a day play fighting with each other. The same cat, when it becomes an adult, spends close to 16 hours sleeping. Right? So the ratio completely changes from playing 
constantly physically with with oneself with one's environment with the animals around with its own siblings with i just drop a piece of string and they're playing with that they're playing with the plants they're playing with something else to essentially not playing at all right and that's the same similar to what happens with us as adults and if i would think about like you know can you give me an example of your question i mean like how would you do you have any specific example which i could like tackle at this point in time yeah so working out is a good okay. example right awesome. yeah when is it play Excellent. and when is it discipline <laughs> this is fun right so the very word work out has the word work in it right <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's certainly not play right it's certainly not play cuz i'm counting the the reps i'm counting the sets right that's the number one thing of a workout right the the thing with anyone who's doing a workout not just as an amateur but even even as a professional the most important thing you do is you log your workouts so if if you're like anil schwarznagar you know every single day this is what you're done this is monday this is chest day i do this many chest flies i do bench flies i do bench press i do push ups i do wide push ups i do narrow push ups and everything has you know number of reps number of sets and everything is by the book you have a timeline just like we have a timer running when is it play it's play when first and foremost you're not keeping count right mm-hmm. so you don't care how many reps how many sets it's play when you're not pushing yourself beyond what you're capable of now that's an interesting thing right so whether it's everyone tells you you got to push yourself you got to push yourself you got to push yourself but it's interesting when you look at animals they're in this flurry of intense physical activity all of a sudden and all of a sudden they're just in a complete state of repose they're like okay i'm tired now i don't want to play so i like these cats around they just jump at each other and they're play fighting wrestling rolling around each other and it's a sudden flurry of excited animated physical movement and then all of a sudden they just like roll over and go to sleep that's it i mean like there's no warm up there's no cool down there's no stretching there's nothing right now how is it that this animal can just move from a state of complete relaxation to a state of complete tension and back effortlessly now that's something even a professional elite olympian is going to struggle to do right and each one of these animals is an elite olympian in its own class right a ty- a, a cat is going to be capable of climbing up a tree no matter what right i've seen my pregnant cat with a litter of five babies inside her effortlessly climb up the tree do everything that it does even when she wasn't pregnant right until the time that she actually delivers the baby how is it that every single animal can stay in this state of elite physical fitness without ever working out have you ever seen an animal work out <laughs> no of course not exactly right so what do they do instead they play mm. they play fight they play hunt they play run so it's not that it's a predator or a prey so sometimes one cat chases the other cat so one is running away and one is running towards sometimes when they're fighting one is dominant and one is submissive right and then they reverse roles 
So in a, essentially an animal, sometimes they're hunting, they're just chasing a, a bee or, you know, a fly, and then they'll play hunting, they're crawling slowly towards that animal, and then they lunge at it quickly. So if you look at it, animals are essentially moving and discovering and exploring the physical extent of their bodies entirely through play. It's very interesting. It's like I, I, one of the things I, in college, I struggle with is I, I thought I didn't like learning in high school and college parts of it. And now that you're saying this, I think, and we're similar, right? With embrace your lazy and the whole, that lazy philosophy and play, it's, it's very similar. But I, I think what I did is I found the play in learning. And I think what you're, what you're saying is that you, like a baby learns how to walk, you do learn extremely valuable things that in retrospect are very difficult for a baby from to go from crawling to walking is, is a very difficult and almost miraculous thing, but they're learning it through play. So it's, there's a certain flow there. There's a certain kind of naturalness there that, that maybe these kind of other disciplines that I think are important, but we, we already value in modern society. We should also value this kind of, corollary important idea of kind of like a childlike playing yeah and that was something that i was just discussing today this morning you know it's like i put this question out on twitter i was saying that can you name one aspect or area of life where you can't use play to make things better sure. right and the pun i used was tell me one area where you can't use play to make it work i mean so but I got a lot of responses, right? So someone said racism, someone said murder, someone said death, someone said, you know, Robbie came in and said, you know, how about a murder trial, right? So, you know, so there were so many interesting challenges as to play can't be the answer to everything. Play is not necessarily the answer to everything, but if you look at it, play is probably the most effortless way of getting the answers you're looking for. Right. If you were to be in a traumatic situation, let's say like, you know, Eric gave me this example. What if someone has just lost their entire family in a, in a war zone? Right. What do you do? Obviously, I don't have an answer to that. I can't just go there and become like, you know, I can't tell the kid, you know, the kid has just lost his family. I can't tell the kid like, you know, oh, forget it. Let's go play. Right. It's not going to work. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's probably cruel. It's probably painful. It's probably going to make the process worse. We don't know the answer to that. But if you look at it, what if I were to gift that little boy who's lost his family, they've just been blown up in a war zone and he has nobody left. What if I were to gift him a little puppy? Right? And now that little puppy, what will the puppy do with that boy? He's going to try to play with him. Right? He's probably going to paw him. He's probably going to understand that the boy is in pain he's probably going to try to cajole him the puppy is probably going to go up to his face and lick him and and then probably like to, you know try to pull his face try to pull his head like you know try to do something and in that state before you know it you would see the child and the dog playing together no words were exchanged no condolences were offered no counseling was provided nothing Two creatures on this planet come together through the medium of play. Wow, that's I, 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 that's great. That's that's. I really love that. 
that image. That's really beautiful. We have we have only a a, a minute left. Um, I want to talk to you for for another hour, but that in a way, that is the point, right? The fact that you know these kind of like you said, this podcast is a little bit of uh, is like play, and it's also like you get a taste for kind of what you're about and what this idea of play is about. Um, so they can explore more in your in your writing and newsletter. But I, I think that that idea that is something that's very important to what I've been dealing with, um, you know, as I've been kind of limping around parts of this kind of lockdown and struggling that this idea that, that play seems like something extra, but really it's what you're saying is it's very life affirming and it's a panacea to the pain, right? It makes, maybe it won't solve the pain, but it gives you, the ability to see the world and work with the world in a way that makes the pain easier. So that was, that was great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast.